Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Layman's Historian, first real episode. Now that we have gotten the formalities out of the way, we can delve into the beginnings of Carthage. Logically, this means that we will begin not with Carthage, but with some other ancient civilization that Carthage comes from. Oops, sorry, spoiler alert. Let's dive in. The story of Carthage begins not in North Africa as we all would think, but in the Middle Eastern city of Tyre. No, not like the circles that turn around on the bottom of your car. T-Y-R-E. Tyre was an ancient city on the eastern Mediterranean in what used to be called Phoenicia, which roughly correlates to modern Lebanon. It was one of many Phoenician city-states, including its most famous sister city, Sidon, as well as Arvad and Beirutus, modern-day Beirut. Now, I have used the term Phoenicians to describe the inhabitants of these cities, but this is a slight misnomer since this title was a derivative of the Greek term Phoenikas, which can mean, number one, a person from Phoenicia, how helpful is that, number two, Tyrian purple, i.e. purple from Tyre, or number three, a date palm. If you asked a merchant from Tyre, he would much more likely identify himself as a member of the Canaanite, or Canaanites, dwellers of Canaan, a land that stretched from the borders of Egypt to Syria in the north. But for the sake of clarity, I will continue to use the term Phoenicia and Phoenicians when talking about the inhabitants of Tyre. This is also an opportunity for a flawless deviation into a side note. The Phoenicians are credited with developing a fantastic alphabet. Although other civilizations, such as the Egyptians and the even older Sumerians had alphabets, the Phoenician alphabet was revolutionary since each letter symbolized one sound. Thus, a multitude of different words could be formed using combinations of these letters. This system was much simpler since people would only have to learn 22 letters as opposed to the older alphabets which had many different symbols for words and thus relied on more complicated combinations and required a greater level of expertise. All this to say that in the future, in honor of this Phoenician accomplishment and due to my own linguistic limitations, all names, places, and events from here on out will be pronounced phonetically. Alright, fair enough. Back to our story. Now these Phoenician city-states were on a narrow strip of coastline hedged in by large mountain ranges in the east and the Mediterranean Sea to the west. This presented something of a problem since there was not a large amount of arable land or other valuable natural resources for the Phoenicians to make a living. So what do people do when they don't have a lot of land and their eastern flank is blocked by mountains? You guessed it, they turn to the sea which is exactly what the Phoenicians did. By the 3rd millennium BC, which would be the thousand years between the year 3000 and 2000 BC, for those of you who, like me, are profoundly confused when counting backwards, the Phoenicians had become master mariners. One of the keys to their success was their development of ships with curved hulls that proved reliably seaworthy. Previously, most Mediterranean civilizations used flat-bottom rafts to navigate major rivers. The Egyptians especially were adept at using these rafts to trade up and down the Nile River, and they developed very large and elaborate versions of these rafts. But however suited these boats were to sail down rivers, they were seriously unfit for sea travel. The development of Phoenician seagoing vessels was the ancient equivalent of having a monopoly on a logistical trade secret. Back to Tyre for a quick second. The city of Tyre was in prime position to exploit this new development of sea power. Tyre was originally on an island off the coast of Phoenicia, with a small stretch of water separating it from the mainland. 
I say originally because much later after the time we are talking about, in 332 BC, Alexander the Great, yes, that Alexander, changed Tyre's status as an island. Alexander had laid siege to Tyre, but since it was an island city and its walls ran right up to the shore, he and his Greeks decided to build an earthen causeway from the mainland to the city in order to attack it more easily and have better chances of capturing it. After a bitter assault across the causeway, Tyre was taken by Alexander, who, enraged by the length of the city's resistance, promptly executed 8,000 citizens, including crucifying 2,000 in the breaches of the walls, sold the rest into slavery, and destroyed most of the city. In other news, what was left of the city of Tyre was no longer an island, since it was now connected to the mainland by Alexander's Causeway. So there's that. But where we are at right now, Tyre's end was way in the future. So let's go back to Tyre's early days. Tyre was superbly positioned to exploit the expansion of maritime trade due to its two great natural harbors, one on the north of the island and one on the south. These were two of the best harbors in the eastern Mediterranean. Both had long, thin strips of land that jutted out into the sea towards each other, but left a small space in between them so ships could go in and out. After this small opening, the harbor widened out into a large bay, kind of like a large bowl. This would give merchant ships plenty of room to maneuver inside the harbor while maximizing docking area by the wharves. The long strips of land, forming the top of this bowl, if you will, shielded ships from storms and the waves of the sea and allowed for them to move around in a relatively calm section of water. As I mentioned earlier, Tyre had not only one, but two of these great harbors, and since they were on opposite sides of the island, Ships could come and go as they pleased, even if the winds or tides were against them. This allowed for trade to continue uninterrupted, no matter what the weather was like, promoting greater efficiency in shipping operations. With this superb natural start, Tyre had nearly unrivaled access to the sea. It also had a foothold on the mainland in the form of its smaller sister city-slash-suburb, Ushu, which was directly across the strait on the mainland. Ushu gave Tyre access to a ready supply of local resources such as timber for ships and food supplies, which Tyre had to heavily import since it did not have enough land to support its large population. Thus, with the development of their seafaring ships, the Phoenicians, and especially the Tyrians, not the one from the Lannisters, became the middlemen of the Mediterranean, building a massive trading empire that shipped raw materials and luxury goods to and from every corner of the sea. From shipwrecks, we have learned that the Phoenicians carted tin, copper, gold and silver jewelry, precious ointments, wood, glazed earthenware dishes, pottery, glass, slaves, and even scrap metal in their ships. They carried the famed cedars of Lebanon along with wine to the Egyptians, traded for silver for Iberia, modern-day Spain and Portugal, and potentially gathered tin from places as far away as Cornwall and Britain. The rise of this flurry of international trade led to the development in Tyre and other Phoenician cities of large industrial works, almost like factories, dedicated to making luxury and common goods. Ivory carving, precious stone cutting, and colored glass making flourished. Additionally, Tyre produced large amounts of both glazed and common pottery, finely finished furniture inlaid with precious gems and ivory, and metalworks such as bronze and silver bowls, gold and silver jewelry, and iron tools and weapons. 
but by far the most famous of the Phoenician exports was the Tyrian purple dye. Indeed, as I mentioned earlier, the Greek word for the Phoenicians literally means crimson or purple. This rich red-purple dye was developed from the murex, a species of rock snails or shellfish that secrete the base substance for the dye. Although we do not know all the specifics of the process, we know that the snails, after having been crushed out of their shells and left in the sun to dry out, were placed in huge industrial vats containing salt water. There, the snails would be left to decompose, which would have given off a hideous stench that filled whole sections of the city. In fact, the smell was so memorable that several ancient chroniclers mention it in their writings. The further steps are lost to us, but the dye produced was unsurpassed. Using it, the Phoenicians dyed embroidered garments and cloth that was widely valued around the Mediterranean, often being solely reserved for royalty or members of the aristocracy. The sheer amount of dye produced is also astounding. At Sidon, for instance, the pile of discarded murex shells was 43 yards high, as tall as a four-story building. In some areas, the Phoenicians produced so much dye that the murex snails were hunted to extinction around several Phoenician cities. Thus, a Phoenician city such as Tyre would be a massive industrial and commercial center, ablaze with pottery kilns and glass furnaces, bustling with traders, craftsmen, laborers, sailors, soldiers, nobles, and slaves. The air would be filled with the sound of the crackling of the industrial ovens, the hammering of smiths, the shouting of merchants, the splashing of waves, the creaks and groans of oars, ropes, and cargoes being moved to and fro, and the general activity of a sophisticated and cosmopolitan port city. So the Phoenicians were skilled traders and craftsmen, truly worthy to be called princes of the sea or merchant princes as they are so called in the Bible. City-states such as Tyre would have a king, but he would have a council of the leading men of the city, men whose families had developed extensive commercial houses using Phoenician financial inventions, including interest-bearing loans, maritime insurance, joint commercial ventures, deposit banking, and possibly even standardized weights and measures. By combining their resources and joint trading ventures, these families could increase their profits while minimizing their risk. Due to their prestige and wealth, these trading houses or firms would have tremendous amounts of power and sway over the populace. The priesthood also formed a powerful contingent of society, with the high priest of Melkart, the Tyrian equivalent of Hercules, being ranked near the king in power and influence. Keep the high priest of Melkard in mind because he plays an important, if relatively passive, role in the founding of Carthage later. Speaking of Hercules, as the Phoenician trading empire grew, they began to become interconnected with more and more people around the Mediterranean, including the Greeks. The Greeks have been having a hard time during this period due to the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization on Crete in 1200 BC. This had brought about a dark age in Greece. As a side note, the term Dark Age is a misnomer, since this Greek Dark Age, as well as the later medieval Dark Ages, are dark because we do not have a lot of records or information from that time, not because there was nothing going on, or because it was a particularly terrible time to be alive. Not that it was necessarily all peaches and cream for the Greeks during this time either. Likely there have been a series of invasions from other peoples, including potentially the Dorians from the Balkans, the Sea Peoples, a seafaring population who later famously attacked the pharaohs in Egypt, and possibly even the Hittites from Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. A decline in the economy, especially in fine art, 
was also a symptom of the time period following the Mycenaean collapse. Enter the Phoenicians, who, in trading with the Greeks, helped revitalize the Greek economy. Phoenician traders coming to Greece, especially to the Greek island of Euboea, located just off the eastern coast of Greece in the Aegean Sea, would trade fine luxury goods from the Middle East in exchange for Grecian pottery, one of the largest Greek exports at this time. But the Greeks were not content to just sit back and be producers for the Phoenician traders. Greece was also a resource-poor nation, with lots of hills that made large-scale agriculture difficult. Ever the entrepreneurs, however, they had turned to the sea and were good traders in their own right, though their ships didn't travel quite as far as the Phoenicians did originally. With the arrival of the Phoenicians, the Greeks quickly picked up on Phoenician financing and maritime techniques to further their own trading plans, including several joint ventures with Phoenician merchants. In fact, there is evidence of several settlements in and around Syria where the Greeks and Phoenicians lived and worked side by side. Interestingly enough, the Greek language, one of the oldest written languages in the world, seems to have been influenced by the Phoenician alphabet. And several Greek words, mostly those relating to commerce, such as ship, galos, and market, makelon, seem to be borrowed Phoenician words. The Greek alphabet also seems to have been an adaptation of the Phoenician, with the Greek alphabet having 24 letters as opposed to the Phoenicians' 22. Remember, the Phoenician alphabet was very attractive due to being easy to learn while providing numerous combinations of letters to render different words. Not that these cultural and commercial exchanges made the Phoenicians or the Greeks best buds. The Greeks were notorious for claiming every revolutionary advance as their idea alone, in a very I-thought-of-that-first way, especially in shipbuilding as we shall see later. Their zeal and enterprise for taking the ideas of others and improving on them, as well as their trading prowess, made them natural rivals to the Phoenicians. Although it is unlikely that Greek trading routes ever surpassed those of the Phoenicians until the collapse of the Phoenician city-states, the Greeks remained one of the greatest commercial and political rivals the Phoenicians ever had. This is especially good to keep in mind since very few Phoenician records have survived, and most of our accounts about them come from Greek and Roman sources, both of whom were not especially fond of the merchant princes of Phoenicia, so it's important to keep those biases in mind. However, Tyre worked with other Mediterranean peoples besides the Greeks during this time as well. In the 10th century BC, which would be the 900s BC, King Hiram of Tyre made an agreement with the Israelite King David, supplying David with cedars from Lebanon, carpenters, and masons to help David build his palace. Later, Hiram expanded his trading agreements with David's son and successor, Solomon. Under this arrangement, the Israelites provided the Tyrians with large amounts of agricultural produce, 200,000 bushels of ground wheat, 200,000 bushels of barley, 170,000 gallons of olive oil, and 170,000 gallons of wine. This would be a huge boon to the Tyrians since, remember, they didn't have much cultivated land. In exchange, the Tyrians supplied raw materials such as cedar and cypress trees and skilled craftsmen to build the Temple of Jerusalem and Solomon's Palace. In fact, one of the leaders of the building projects was a Tyrian craftsman named Huram Abi, who was skilled in working with gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, wood, and colored fabrics. Talk about a resume. Curiously, though, for some reason King Hiram felt that it was necessary to inform Solomon that Huram Abi was only half Tyrian. Not sure what that was all about, 
but it seemed like an impolite thing to say when reciting someone's credentials. The fact that the Tyrians had such sought-after workers in these massive building projects also goes to show the extents of their expertise in both building and craftsmanship. The relationship between the Israelites and the Tyrians even became familial in the early 9th century BC, which would be the 800s BC, when Ahab, king of Israel, married the notorious Jezebel, daughter of King Ithabaal of Tyre, much to Ahab's and Israel's grief. However, Tyre's star continued to rise and it prospered, becoming the foremost of the Phoenician cities to the point that she ruled over all the others, even her sister city of Sidon. Though all seemed well during this time, Tyre's golden age days were numbered, and the time of colonial expansion and the birth of Carthage was at hand. With that ominous note, good listener, we will conclude this episode. Special thanks to my brother-in-law Mark for the excellent intro and outro music. Thanks, Mark. Couldn't do it without you. Next time, we will look at how Tyrian exiles founded one of the greatest and longest-lasting empires of the ancient world, an empire that in its heyday could go toe-to-toe with Rome and then some. Until then, take care and read more history.